Welcome to the podcast, Eavesdropping on Arthurians, a podcast that records some of the world's top Arthurians chatting about Arthurian texts. Imagine you're at an Arthurian conference, and after a day of listening to papers on all things Arthurian, you've all gone to the pub. So, order a pint of ale, pull up a stool, and settle in to listen to two scholars talk about their favorite books. Stephanie Morley is a medievalist in the English Department of St. Mary's University in Halifax, who researches women's participation in the literary production of the late Middle Ages. We chatted today about a text that's not often on Arthurian lists, the Roman du Silence. So welcome, Stephanie, and, and I'm so excited to talk with you about the Roman du Silence today. Oh, me too. Me too. It's one of my favorites. Good. Well, I hadn't read it before this year. And so let's start talking about when it comes and, and um, you know, when it was written and so on. And then we'll get into the plot and, and those details. Great. Um, okay. So it's, uh, it's a romance in Old French and uh, it's a mixture of um, uh, Francienne and Picard which places it um, apparently in the latter half of the 13th century. So my understanding is they've dated it based on the dialect, okay. um, but it gets discovered in 1911. It's a kind of, it only exists in one kind of scrappy manuscript that is currently in Nottingham. Uh, in, in 1911, it's discovered in a box in some, you know, aristocrats home, uh, a box marked old papers, no value. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so only one you know standalone copy of a manuscript yes but... yes of this fascinating romance that is old paper no value um and it's it seems to be written by someone uh who calls himself master heldress of cornwall uh as you know in the first line of the poem um Often this narrator inserts himself wryly into the narrative, but we don't really know anything about him or who he was or is. So okay. it's 13th century, it's French, and it's fairly newly rediscovered, right, within the 20th right. century. And and somewhere from the north of France, near Picardy. Yes, yes, it okay. might be. <laughs> so is there the possibility that Master Heldress might be a pseudonym or a character as well? Yes. Well, I think like some um, scholars have have suggested this because no one can seem to find a Heldress of Cornwall. And indeed, Silence is from Cornwall. So right. like her parents are, you know, own Cornwall. Uh, so it seems like Master Heldress in the poem could be a character or a thinly veiled persona. Yeah, stand in. But um, this question of whether Master Heldress might also be a woman is really fascinating, given that Silence herself, themselves, is a woman who is dressed as a man. Is there a similar transvestism going on with the word master and the thing is of course it's impossible to know um so it's tantalizing to imagine that it's a pseudonym but i think it also to me it raises this question that often comes up in medieval literature of well 
why do we always assume every poet is a male? Um, what does it do to a text, if anything? Maybe it doesn't do anything to imagine that the um, author, if they're anonymous, is a female or a woman. Um, and also we might think about how proving that a woman is writing medieval poetry takes more evidence than the assumption of a default male author. And I think for this text, especially because it's it's about transvestism or a woman living her life as a man, like is is Heldris a is it is Heldris a transvestite, right? Like that's an even more interesting question, perhaps. And even less difficult, more difficult to answer. <laughs> well, or even if they didn't actually dress as a man, is writing as a man a kind of metaphor for... Oh, for, yeah. Is, like a literary transvestism. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So so we're talking a lot about the plot and, and yeah. <laughs> details, but let's let's have a rundown of the plot. I know that's really hard. It's, it's you know, several hundred pages Expansive. long. But... Yes. <laughs> well, so I'll give you this sort of highlights that I find are kind of helpful to sort of know about it if if someone hasn't read it yet. or read it yet obviously they're going to read it of um, course because <laughs> it's fascinating yes um so it's a romance of course and it begins with um the sort of small r romance of um uh silence's parents Cador and Euphemie um Ufemi is skilled in the several uh, seven liberal arts, as we hear. Um, and uh, Cador, who's a very brave knight, uh, kills the dragon for the king. King Evan is the king of England at this point. But Cador becomes ill and Ufemi becomes his physician and cures him. So Silence has this quite um, skilled and adept mum, right? <laughs> um, and they marry, they inherit a thousand pounds a year and Cornwall. Uh, um, but King Evan will not let women inherit in England. So when Cador and Ufemi become pregnant, they decide to hide the sex of their child if their child is a girl, uh, which uh, she is, and they raise their daughter from birth as a boy okay so silence never knows they are a girl until uh she reaches puberty and is told by her father and there's this kind of crisis of conscience that um she has that is allegorized as reason and um silence runs away and becomes a very successful minstrel and a famous knight so two professions that are held by men typically right. um, uh, so several times she also rejects the advances of Ufemi who is King Evan's queen and Ufemi even uh, fakes an attempted rape uh, <laughs> and uh, so so she she claims that silence has raped her yes yes which you know it's so hilarious because we have this dramatic irony of knowledge, right? right. <laughs> uh, so she gets sent away. Uh, interesting that Euphemi actually wants to execute um, silence for this attempted rape, but the king doesn't want to because he comes from a good family. So he just sends him away. 
Right. Um, but uh, so she gets sent on an impossible uh, quest to silence does get sent right. to capture Merlin, who is living as a wild man. Uh, but of course, only a woman can trick Merlin. So she, she silence unmasks themselves. Uh, and Merlin sort of reveals this, uh, that this fantastic knight, fantastic minstrel is actually a woman. A woman. Uh, women are once again allowed to inherit conveniently because Evan marries Silence, of course, King Evan. So she becomes the Queen of England uh, because, of course, his first uh, treasonous wife, Euphemie, is executed along with her lover. Uh, so it ends with Silence, who could not inherit becoming the Queen of England. Uh, but she also is quite silent by the end of the narrative, right? After having had all of these adventures. Right. Um, and I mean, it's much more expansive than that. And there are these really fascinating moments where Silence has kind of arguments with herself or with reason that are... Um, quite involved in quite long right for a romance I think there's yeah. a strange internal dialogue well and nature and nurture also yes. show up as these allegorical figures yes right? there's a wonderful sort of argument between nature and nurture um which is both funny but also seems really central to what's going on in the poem and I think it lands almost in the middle of the narrative as well interesting yeah so I've got this on an Arthurian course um it shows huh. up sometimes on Arthurian lists but Arthur isn't the king so what yeah. makes this do you, I mean first of all do you think it should be an Arthurian romance and and if so why yeah um that's a really good question but I do think it is uh Arthur adjacent I suppose okay. I'd say, right? Because it to me, it has a sort of feel of an episode in Mallory, maybe like one of those side adventures. But it's got Merlin. So yeah. that's a default. But Evan is also described early on as the greatest king, save King Arthur, right? So right. it's part of an Arthurian universe of romance, I suppose. And right. Evan has all of the all of the sort of marks of Arthur, right? He's good to his knights. He rewards them. Um, so he's a sort of stand-in, I suppose, for Arthur. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like he might as well be Arthur, except he can't be because you'd need Lancelot and Guinevere and all the other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. they've just sort of taken Arthur out, reminded us Arthur exists, but... This is Evan. <laughs> right. And Merlin shows up, which I think Merlin. is my kicker for whether or not yes. it's Arthurian. Yeah, I think that's, I feel like Merlin is there for all of us so that we can put this on our Arthur courses if we want to. <laughs> <laughs> Heldreth looked forward, you know, 600 years and said, yes. okay, this may be taught. Yes, this is going to be discovered. People will be excited about it. <laughs> Let's throw him in there. 
<laughs> All right. So I heard you give a paper where, and actually this was my, I mean, I'd heard of this romance before, but this is when I actually decided to go out and read it. Can you, you know, give me a sense of what you argued in that paper? Because it was yeah. specifically on this cross-dressing yeah. Um, incident yeah, or incident, the whole narrative. Yeah. So I was really interested in a sort of more generally clothing and the work of clothing or costume in literature, but especially in medieval romance, where it often gets long descriptions. So this was a kind of natural fit, because it's so essential, not just to, you know, the class of a character, but, but where they belong in a kind of gender space. I was sort of thinking, okay, how do how does clothing work in a literary way? Um, and in the romance, nurture calls silence um, disnatured or denature, disnatured. And I thought, well, what does it mean for this character to be disnatured? What does Heldris mean by disnatured? And how can we read transgenderism through a transvestite silence. So that was my initial kind of question. Um, and I came, you know, I read uh, Marjorie Garber who talks about transvestism as uh, a subversive practice that indicates a category crisis, often okay. elsewhere in a text, right? That the transvestite in a text becomes like, oh, this is the thing that we can't resolve. Okay. Or representative, metaphorically representative of the thing we can't resolve. Sure, of a category crisis elsewhere. Yeah, case. yeah. So she talks about it a lot in Shakespeare. Okay. Um, and so I thought, well, does does silence work this same way, right? It's a productive way to think about cross-dressing as a, a literary tool in this case, a, a device. Right. Um, but it seemed to me that in silence, uh, she's not in crisis when she's in men's clothing or they are not in crisis in men's clothing no one has trouble with that and in fact they are quite silence is quite successful when they're dressed as a man right. um, and that the category crisis for the character comes when she knows she's female so when her father reveals to her at puberty that she's actually a woman right like this person silence has been dressed as a boy their whole life until right. puberty, right? So even he, they thought they were a boy. Right. Um, so there's this moment where they, she has to think about her body differently at puberty, perhaps, you know, understandably um yeah <laughs> just she has more strange to, things start happening that yes. don't happen to boys yes she has way more to deal with <laughs> um <laughs> and that these are the most disruptive moments in the poem so in fact it's like um the female body becomes a sort of code for gender fluidity or gender expansion right she thinks she's a boy but she's actually a girl but she still is really successful at all of these professions that are coded male right. um and so that she seems to almost have a more flexible range of gender identity and expression than 
a binary system, even as the female body becomes this moment of crisis, right? So it's not actually the transvestite body, it's the female body in this poem, I think, that is the moment of difficulty. Yeah, I was just going to say that, that it's not the the cross-dressing that's the crisis. It's the kind of the undressing that is the the crisis. Which happens at the end of the poem, right? And it's, in fact, after she's undressed that she becomes silent, (laughs) Um, at the end of the poem, because, you know, this is the only way to verify that she is actually a woman, right? So Merlin tells everybody this, but that's not enough. So she's right. publicly derobed, right? Disrobed in a weirdly troubling uh, scene. It's yeah. reminiscent of, um, oh, what is it? The Clark's Tale in Canterbury Tales, right? Where right. Um, Griselda is stripped publicly. Mm-hmm. And yet Griselda points it out and points yeah. out the shame, but, yeah. but silence doesn't really? Or no, does she... she has a very long explanation and she does, she sort of like kicks herself for capturing Merlin because she realizes that she's outed herself right. in doing so, um, which suggests, you know, who are going to be psychological about it, that she wants to stay a man, Right. <laughs> Right. <laughs> because it, well, it allows her freedoms, et cetera, but importantly, it also allows her, um, you know, economic success, right? She right. will inherit from her parents. Right. In this patriarchal society. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been calling them them. Yes, I know. <laughs> it's confusing. And, well, it's it's really hard to do, yeah. to, you know, to, to pronoun switch, but what are the pronouns used in the French? Like, yeah. Well, this is a great question, and this is something that I've been looking at more closely to see if I can sort of figure it out, because the pronouns in the French shift from il and l. They're most often il, so most often the masculine pronoun. Interesting. But the the most interesting bit, and I is the um, the genitive pronouns, because of course in French they match the noun, right? So Oh, yeah. Sa, whatever French feminine, right? It's a grammatic, <laughs> there's a grammatical gender in French that we don't have in English. Right. So the translator, um, and I'm, I'm was reading uh, Sarah Roche uh, Madi's um, translation, which is sort of the published one. I think that's the one most available. Yeah. And it's really, really great. It's really clear. Um, And it's a facing page translation, so you can check back and forth. But uh, she has made decisions on whether to write her or his in those moments because English doesn't have the uh, gendered grammar in the same way French does. Right. So in French, to be clear, if a table is feminine, you say... Sa uh, table, even if it's a male. That's right. Um, whereas in English, you would say her table or his table, and so the the gender would go with the owner rather than with the object. That's right. Yes. the The translator has to make a decision in English, and I'm really interested in that decision. Right? Like, how do you, as a reader, uh, keep either the sort of crisis that silence is going through where she doesn't, he, she, they don't know what gender they are 
or right. aren't sure. Uh, because the French, I noticed on rereadings, the gen the female gender is forefront um, at those moments of crisis for silence. Really? So when she, like she is used often when there's a sort of inner turmoil for silence, like when she's kind of beating herself up about revealing Merlin or when she discovers from her father that she is really a, a female or was born female as a woman. Um, so it's almost as though the female gender is associated with inner psychological difficulty and the male pronoun is used when he in his sort of public guise is a successful knight or killing dragons or you know he's remarkable at everything this human being right um and so i i am wondering and working through and thinking about a translation with they with with a gender neutral they Hmm. And what that might look like, or if it also needs to change, right, to signal these um, problems for silence the character. Yeah, because you'd lose that with a a consistent they translation. Yeah, that that would sort of flatten it. And because I'm not sure, I don't know yet enough whether this is a person that we would call gender fluid. I mean, I think they live their lives in a gender fluid way. Right. Or even a gender like expansive way. Well, is there any indication of what gender they think of themselves as? I mean, presumably they would grow up thinking of themselves as a he. Yeah. Then when they go back to acting as a he, like after that moment of crisis, are they totally he again or do they, are they just acting? Yeah. Well, this is the thing there. You sort of want that. I want that. Right. That sort of, you know, and it's very non-medieval, right? That like sort of, um, you know, Virginia Woolf's uh, stream of consciousness thought, right? right? which we don't have in this text. Right. So really, we just see silence often in those moments right after this, the inner, the inner turmoil manifests as a debate with reason, right? right. So there's an allegorical stream of consciousness I suppose well that's often the way in medieval texts yeah. is that internal psychology gets manifested as outward allegory yeah so there are these allegorical discussions with reason um, and then silence often runs away and does something really manly right so <laughs> interesting so runs away and so after it's revealed that she's really a man a, a woman she has a an argument with reason and runs away and becomes an extremely successful minstrel. Right. You know, so successful that the other minstrels want to murder her, him. (laughs) And then, you know, uh, Euphemie, the king's queen, uh, like, you know, seduces her. It's, I think it's the Potiphar's wife motif of the, of their romance. And um, they run away again. Right. Uh, They're exiled, in fact, but uh, there's and then they become this extremely successful knight. So the the response to the crisis of knowing one is a woman, even though you didn't know before, often is to be a very successful public male. Right. So that in this case, the clothing is 
dictating the actions in some way. Right. Um, so that the feminine, I think, is, as far as I can tell, seems to be associated with an interiority, right? And that fits in the fact that it's a male disguise, right? And that, right. Um, but also, interestingly, with the, I mean, traditional binary, and yes, I know that yeah. these are binaries, but that the male is public and the female yeah. is private yeah. and all of that. And that those are also moments of um, being unsure, so that there's a weakness, perhaps a perceived weakness in the feminine that is right. counteracted by this really masculine uh, behavior of silence as a knight and silence as a minstrel. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's endlessly fascinating, really, this yeah. poem. And it's a delight to read as well, right? It's really fun. And there are moments that are funny. Yeah, it's a really good yeah. yarn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the most fascinating and most humorous characters is Merlin. And yes. <laughs> there are a lot of funny moments with him. And so he, you know, we usually think of Merlin as kind of this wise, sage, solemn right. Gandalf figure. Right. But he, in this one, he's actually more of a trickster, a Loki figure or, yeah. or something. Yeah. And he is like, isn't he like disguised as a wild man in the woods? I think, well, he's actually yeah. is a wild yeah. man in the woods, but yeah, but yeah. that goes back to, I mean, Mallory has Merlin in disguises all the time. I right. think there's a, a, you know, sub thread of Merlin as a trickster and disguise <laughs> yeah. figure, but that really comes out here. Yeah. And so I think that's another reason why it should be on a Arthur course, right? <laughs> that this is like, well, here's another version of Merlin, <laughs> Right. Um, and, and it helps make sense of the other versions, right? Because yeah. in, you know, the standard story, Merlin disguises Uther mm -hmm. and, you know, to, to get a grain, but that really doesn't come up again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that she, and we also see that silence in order to capture him is helped by uh, nature, she lures him with like milk and beef and roses or something. Right. right because he's been living on berries. Yes, and that's right. Yeah. And that's, that's helped by, you know, one of her creators. Yeah. And I'm not sure we would make the association today that you can't, you know, vegetarianism is unnatural. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, <I know. laughs> but in this poem, it's, it's, he's a meat eater. And yeah. so that is natural. And so that's yeah. how she lures him. And then, so that begs the question then, what is natural for silence, right? Is it a reflection? Because it's right after this that she would revert to her nature, right? Mm -hmm. If we look at the central figures of nature and nurture having that argument, right? Nature finally wins, so to speak. Right. Um, and she is brought back into that role. Yeah, that yeah. that nature intended and that nurture foiled right yeah so let's hold that thought i want to talk a little bit more about merlin so what i mean merlin does the big reveal at yeah. the end yeah and it's like why does he do that like is he mad at being caught or i think what's going on there? yeah i don't know and he laughs right is this the like merlin laughs moment 
um, that he's, so yeah, I don't know if he's mad about being caught or if he, you know, he's Merlin. So does he know already? Right. (laughs) That's a possibility. (laughs) That he, but I guess, because isn't the thing is that he, he can only be tricked by a woman. So this must be a woman, right? Yeah. And the laughter comes because he, I think there's one incident when he sees someone buying new shoes and he laughs and he says, well, they won't ever get the chance to to wear them because they're going to die soon. Right. Like it's a grim laughter. Well, and it's kind of this huge universal dramatic irony. Yeah. That he knows what's going to happen all the time. And so he finds everything funny. Well, and like, it's, it's a weird sort of like, it's almost like a version of Providence, right? Like he's, right. he's, um, but I wonder too, he also reveals that Ufemi, the queen of King Evan has, you know, managed to carry on an affair with someone else, right? Who is dressed violent, as a nun. Who's dressed as a nun. <laughs> because he says, <laughs> he laughs and he says, there are two people in your kingdom who are not you know, who are dressed differently than who they are. And one is silence and the other is this man dressed as a nun, right? The queen's lover dressed as a nun. So there is something funny about that. (laughs) Um, And he could dress up just as a, you know, handmaiden, but the fact that he goes the extra step and dresses as a nun. So maybe the laughter is also like that kind of knowing laughter that I know something you don't know, even though I have been bested, like it's revealed this thing that. Yeah, that's interesting that he didn't know that silence was a woman or maybe he knew and he chose to get trapped or. Yeah, like he just or that he didn't know, but he knows because he she was successful in trapping him, even though they present as a knight that she must be a woman, right? That that is well, that's thing a, that, that's yeah. a possibility, but yeah. then he seems to have all of this other knowledge and, about yeah. other people that, and he then he knows about the, the nun. Yeah. Right. He can see through the disguises and the yeah. clothing. Yeah. So I, yeah, it's hard to know what his motivations are, but he is a really, like he's a really impish or a trickster as you say, right? Yeah. He's an, He's a trickster Merlin in this, which is, I don't know, he's approachable. (laughs) I would guess so. (laughs) But yeah, he doesn't seem to use his foreknowledge to help the kingdom or any of the things he usually would for Arthur. No, unless it's helping silence because now she can inherit. But that only is helpful to King Evan because he's the one who marries her. Yes. Well, and I suppose that, you know, in terms of the general morals of the kingdom, he's also helping Evan by revealing his wife's infidelity. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But he didn't want that to be revealed before when the wife accused um, Silence of raping her. Yeah. Evan sent him away rather than risking the public shame. Sent him away, as he says, because he's from a good family. (laughs) <laughs> right right there's this sort of yeah um so it's not just you know it's one of the I mean I'm thinking about something like Twelfth Night right where Orsino falls in love with Cesario despite himself 
Right. Like, is it one of those moments where Evan just really likes silence, but doesn't know why and doesn't want to execute him? <laughs> so, well, there are hints of that, aren't there? Yeah, like I think so. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, all of this brings up, I guess, the question that I have about this whole poem. Um, there was an article in the actually the latest Arthuriana mm. journal of it. And I'm going to quote, it's by Jessica Barr. Um, With the exception of reproductive and sexual potential, which Silence's encounters with Euphemy make clear is a problem, the romance suggests that there is no essential difference between male and female. Hmm. So aside from these moments when she's being trapped into sex or marriage, Silence he can function perfectly well as a male. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it's that female body. That's the problem. Right. And so is, and he, there's a, there's a moment when I think at that crisis that you talk about when he first discovers that he's a, she, Mm -hmm. um, that he complains about the restrictions on women. Yeah. In a quite feminist tirade, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And so is this a, feminist romance I mean as mm. feminist as you could get in the middle ages yeah, in that yeah. it, it points out that women can do everything men can do except they've got all these restrictions right. or I mean it, he is turned back into a she at the end and brought under patriarchal control and mm. is in the you know marriage with King Evan and King yeah. Evan benefits in this patriarchal society from inheritance and all of that so what's the message? Like, what's the overall message of the poem? Is it feminist? Is it anti-feminist? Is, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I think what this poem does is, exactly as you said, it shows that the female body, and we know it's a female body, can do all of the things a male body can do. In fact, in this poem, like better than all of the other male bodies. Right. But then there's that sort of, that difficulty, and I wonder if this is just the nature of a medieval text or the nature of romance, right? That a happy ending. Yeah, yeah, that there has to be a happy ending or a marriage, and that the the things that are outside of the norm, or you know, the child that has been in the wilderness is brought back into the fold. Right. Um, so it feels like it's feminist until that moment, <laughs> I suppose. Right. Um, but I'm also, I think that your quotation about uh, the reproductive moments, uh, was, sorry, I can't remember, reproductive and sexual potential. Right. Because um, I think about the vulnerable female body in that moment where Euphemi is making these advances on silence. Yes. And so it's both silence's female body, but also then this um, lie, right? Where right. Euphemi like bloodies a napkin and says like the, the supposed rape is a violent one, right? So right. you see, I think in that moment, two female bodies who are vulnerable in these situations, right? And I mean... Right, because if silence hadn't actually been a woman, that would have been a real possibility for the queen. I never thought that. Yeah, absolutely. And this is also a a 
situation that Silence's female body would have encountered all of the time, right, out in the wilderness, right? She couldn't have run away and become a minstrel if she was recognized as a woman, right? If she looked like a woman dressed as a woman. So to me, that's, it's this really sort of touching moment almost where we see the vulnerability of, of the same bodies, right? In this world, right? In this world of romance, but also I think in the medieval world, right? And I think like that exception of reproductive and sexual potential that Barr talks about is a really important exception that we shouldn't ignore about you know the place of woman in medieval society both I think in this romance but maybe in a you know outside of the romance as well well and she talks about the reproductive and sexual potential but what I really like about your reading and I think our conversation today is that it's sexual vulnerability Mm -hmm. as well and that it's that vulnerability of the female body that is really brought out not just through silence but through euphemia as well yeah and she's like supposed to be evil here but i think that it's a it's really telling that she chooses a violent rape right yes um that is just a kind of i don't know to me a reminder or a a sign of things that we've seen in other romances but also just of the reality i think of medieval women, even medieval women who are queens and, yeah. you know, members of the gentry. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting as well. Like, I think that could, like the fact that this romance is bringing this up and making it an issue mm-hmm. is in itself feminist, right? And is pointing yeah. to this. Yeah. So I think I would come down on the side of feminism even, you know, or, you know, proto-feminism, whatever, you know, I'm not suggesting that Heldress is a feminist necessarily, but that right. we can describe it as a feminist text, or we can read it as a feminist text from where we are, right? Yeah. Um, because I think it does reveal those things in sometimes subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways. Yeah, well, and it invites the reader, and I'm sure this must have been the same for medieval readers as well. It invites the readers, like that moment of rape and so on, mm-hmm. or, you know, non-rape, really, Yeah, to think about that whole web of structure and to think back on all the times that silence could have been raped. Yeah, of course. And the and also the way that, that Evan denies that rape, right? right. Or, or acknowledges it, but then you know, doesn't, doesn't do anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the way that he takes it as a shame on himself mm-hmm. that his mm-hmm. wife got raped is, is really, I think revealing about medieval yeah. shame cultures. And, yeah. and also yeah. like women's like women as chattel or women as, you know, property. ownership property. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and that's what he does with silence at the end, right? He, yeah. he marries her, but it's mostly for her. Like she is part and parcel of her property. I yeah. Think. Which he gifted in the first place, right? Yeah. <laughs> she gifted to Cador in the first place. Yeah. Interesting. Well, thank yeah. you so much for this discussion. Oh, it's this been is really a, fascinating. Yeah, this is a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm always happy to chat about these things. And You've been listening to Eavesdropping on Arthurians with Kathy Causey. 
Join me next time to eavesdrop on another chat about a different but equally fascinating story about art. Our music is Mordred's Lullaby by Heather Dale. You can download it for free from Heather Dale.